Hey guys, just a quick one before today's episode with Dr. Dean that everything discussed in today's podcast is for informational purposes only and that if you wish to partake in any of the topics discussed, please seek the advice of a medical professional. Thanks guys, enjoy. Hey guys and welcome to today's episode. Now it is my pleasure and my privilege to introduce to you a man who some of you may refer to as the Gandalf of the bodybuilding industry or perhaps the Dumbledore of the bodybuilding industry for his superior knowledge in all things really when it comes to anabolic supplements um, and a long list. So is the one, the only Dr. Dean. How are we doing my man? Thank you Van. <coughs> Thank you for such a eloquent description of myself <laughs> i think i think it's the only way really the only intro i saw fit because i think you know your knowledge that you share quite freely is something that is so valuable that so many people that perhaps partake in the use of anabolics or bodybuilding like should be listening to i remember listening to you a couple of years ago like replying to your stories i remember listening to a walk when you talked about your pct protocol and just being like Fuck! This guy knows his shit. So yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I'm like you said. I, I think it all really started, uh, and I've said this often. People have my wife Morgan to thank for this <laughs> because uh, originally I was very, I was a very personal person, and that I sort of kept to myself. People knew who I was, obviously, in the Irish bodybuilding scene, but uh, it was never me getting out there, and you know freely discussing things if someone stopped me in the gym and said oh what do you think on this i'd have a conversation with them but it was it was when i met morgan that she was like you have so much that you can give back to people uh, with what you know and you know what you've demonstrated so she got me on snapchat and you know the instagram stories because before I, I honestly i'm quite a shy person well to, uh, a massive thanks strangers. to your wife a massive thanks to your wife <laughs> So I guess that kind of leads us right into, you know, those that perhaps have been living under a rock that don't know who Dr. Dean Smart is. Could you tell us a little bit, a little bit of a summary about yourself, your bodybuilding career, um, you know, supplement needs, everything you do with that, and and your coaching to date. Yeah, so I hold a BSc in chemistry and pharmaceutical chemistry. So that was my undergraduate degree, and that was the study of you know the design of drugs pharmacology toxicology um i was fortunate i became i came top of the university and was given a scholarship for a phd in synthetic chemistry so that again was where i spent the next four years after my degree <clears throat> and that sort of in that period i was a kickboxer but an accident led to me shattering the bone on my right ankle Oof. so from the age of 22 onwards i've just I, I was using bodybuilding as an augment to the kickboxing yeah to improve my strength but at that point i sort of understood that my longevity later on for kickboxing it wasn't going to be there for the future so i sort of like my dad is a ifbb bodybuilding judge and he said to me why don't you go properly into bodybuilding so yeah, since the age of 22, I've just fell more and more in love with the sport of bodybuilding. I um, competed my first show in 2011 in the BMBF, and I've gone to represent Ireland in the IFBB European Championships. And I mean, bodybuilding has just given so much to my life over the last few years that I have a lot to thank for, Trua. 
I love that, dude. I love that. I, I guess people and probably know me more so as the educator on Trained by JP. Yeah, that's how I knew Dr. you. Dr. D. And I think that's where I gained a lot of my popularity when, again, from Morgan and obviously Jordan Peters was my coach. Um, I was just interacting daily on the forum, answering questions for fun to the point where I came that Jordan was like, um, I would like you to be part of my team full time. Um, in the last two years, then again, the other side of people probably know me is from the Dr. Dean range with supplement needs. So we have the haloed sleep stack, the heart stack, kidney stack, or um, the astrag flow, as we have to call it now, and the liver stack. So I, I just put together a series of compounds which I felt were going to be beneficial for um, advanced athletes to keep their health under control. Because I was tired of seeing underdosed compounds, um, underdosed supplements, I mean, on the market that weren't really putting people's health first. Yeah. And so I guess I guess my ethos surrounding with supplement needs is that people's health comes first and then obviously if we make money after that, so be it. But again, that's why you, you won't find many other competitors that will keep up with how we've done things with supplement needs. Yeah, and mate, your products are like amazing. I can vouch for them. I use them, and I had a client. I'm sure this was about three, four weeks ago. I posted on my story. Um, he was running, or we just upped his nandrolone, and I finally convinced him to check his blood pressure. And it was just, it was, it was say one three five over eighty or or one three seven, and we put your astragaflow I, I keep calling it the blood pressure stack right but I'll call it astragaflow and uh, it just came down to the 120s and just sort of held there and I was like that's awesome and I, I replied saying health first bodybuilding second and you were like I like that more so I think that just like it's amazing to see like when you when you brought it out I was like any advanced bodybuilder like if, you, if you're going to pay 30 quid for a vial or something pay the fucking money to take care of your health because it's all about the longevity. So I think that what you said there speaks volumes about the kind of person you are, said health first, and if we make money second, that's great. So, mate, this is why I wanted you to come on the podcast, speak to people, because on the calls that we've had, even though it's been about blood work, like you can tell when you talk about it, you're passionate about it. And I fucking love with that, and I, I resonate with it. So... Like from myself, everyone in VW Physique and the listeners watching, massive thank you for today. And if we can, I'm just going to pick your brain this hour and I'm just going to jump straight in. So today's episode, we are going to talk a little bit about anabolics, growth hormone and blood work. But to start off with, based on the two previous uh, episodes that we've had, um, we've kind of discussed our, our test, our DHT derivatives and nandrolone. But I think some of the listeners still don't have an idea of what these compounds are. And and when you know why are we using different ones during a bulk or during a cut? So if you could perhaps give the listeners a a sort of rundown in layman's terms of you know with those compounds themselves and why we would use different ones, that'd be awesome. Yeah, so I guess the very first thing that we need to consider then is the basic term of pharmacology surrounding steroids. So why do we have all these different classes of steroids? or why were they developed in the first place and the simplest way to explain that is that we wanted to try and mitigate side effects we we observed testosterone for example had x y and z side effects in a person 
Um, for example, if we give testosterone to a female, we may see the resulting, you know, androgenic side effects of hair growth, um, genitalia growth, and that may not be a good thing. So then we had to do a series of, you know, looking at what structure of the compound causes certain effects. So we know then when it comes to um, the DHT derivatives, we know that they elicit a slightly different effect to testosterone and that we tend to favor the androgenic um, sides or actions that steroids have. So you can we can basically break out, when we study steroids, we either look at if they have anabolic potential or whether they have androgenic potential. That's the simplest way to explain it. And what they done was they administered compounds to rats and they measured a section of muscle in around the groin region called the levator annie. And what they done with the rats was they exposed the rats to the different compounds and watched what grew. Did the levator annie muscle grow or did their prostate grow? Okay. And from there, you can then understand does the compound have anabolic potential to increase muscle mass or does it have androgenic side effects and that it causes, you know, sexual gland um, growth or, you know, increased production of sebum for oily skin, etc. Yep. So when we look at when we're favoring certain different compounds, we're, we're basically basing it off this androgenic to anabolic ratio. So we always say testosterone has an anabolic to androgenic ratio of one is to one. Yep. So it's equally anabolic as it is androgenic. Then if we come to something like nandrolone, what we've done structurally to the molecule of nandrolone is that we have this um, carbon at the 19 position. It's a metal group. When that's present on testosterone, it can lead to androgenic side effects because we have a potential to create DHT from testosterone. With nandrolone, we've now removed that C19 carbon and we now have greater potential for anabolic action of that compound versus androgenic because the compound weakly converts to its DHT derivative. So I guess people need to understand that it's more so what we're trying to mitigate there is the androgenic side effects to increase our anabolic potential. And, and it's the same for both, you know, a off-season versus a pre-contest. Our off-season, we're trying to maximize muscle growth, so we're going to favor compounds which are more anabolic. In a uh, pre-contest setting, we still want to favor anabolics in that just because we are in a deficit doesn't mean that we're necessarily not going to build muscle mass, but we may then want to take on board the potential cosmetic benefits of DHT compounds and how they give our muscle a certain cosmetic appearance due to the, to the dry nature of the compound. And that's where you start to see wet versus dry compounds in, you know, bro science, simple terms. <laughs> wet, wet compounds, you have old water, you know, so we'd look at testosterone, nandrolone, etc., being wet compounds, and then we have dry compounds like trembolone, winstrol, anavar, etc., stuff where we don't tend to retain water. And I mean, we could go down the whole rabbit hole of why that happens, and um, based on 
it's not just the androgen receptor that we need to consider when we're talking about steroids. It's that AAS act on all steroid receptor families. So for example, we have the mineral corticoid receptors in our body and they control how our water balance occurs or how we retain sodium and potassium. And it's true that activation of the mineral corticoid with anabolics that you get that very full appearance to our muscles when we use the likes of testosterone nandrolone because we have increased sodium retention and increased uh, intracellular water retention within our muscles. Um, so, so just to pick your brain, if that's helping, say, retain fullness, and we talk about a DHT derivative such as mast helping what we'd call a, a drier look, then what would mast properties be if, you know, let's say if we consider the, the, the sort of wet and dry, could you give us an idea of what, say, a mast or a primo would do? The opposite of, I would, I would think. Uh, uh, so I guess where that really comes from is the potential for aromatization of the compound. So can the compound aromatize in the estrogen? And again, that aromatization into an estrogenic compound will again further augment that mineral corticoid activation to cause us to retain fluid. Okay. So when we look at the structure of mastron, we have done a um, we've done a chemical transformation to the parent molecule, which is DHT. And again, DHT can't convert into estrogen anyway, yeah. because of the, the the structure to the compound. Um, in that regard, being a DHT derivative, you aren't going to have that same level of mineral corticoid activation because we don't see that with DHT derivatives. Versus the likes of um, the testosterone family drugs, like testosterone and then the derivatives such as baldenone, we do see then that mineral corticoid receptor activation. Same with Primo, it's a DHT derivative similar to Mastron, but again, we've done a couple of other modifications to um, the uh, A ring of the steroid. So if we look at the steroid molecule, you have A, B, C, and D rings. Um, and each point of that molecule making a chemical difference to it changes dramatically how that compound interacts with either the androgen receptor, 5-alpha reductase, which makes your DHT derivatives, or um, aromatase, which creates um, aromatic estrogen molecules. Um, we know that nandrolone can convert to estrogen through aromatase, but it can via its interaction at the androgen receptor to create estrogen metabolites um, but again it's more so the fact that nandrolone can have an effect on our mineral corticoids to retain sodium and fluid yeah so then it takes um, more with it and again it, people tend to think that like we're looking at this from a contest setting that just by dropping testosterone pre-contest that we're going to have a drier appearance because we'll drop testosterone and we'll ramp up aromatase inhibitors. So we'll drop your testosterone completely out and we'll ramp up the aromatase inhibitors to crash your estrogen into the ground. And then you wonder why people end up like string on stage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So you, you need that certain level of intracellular water retention from potentially testosterone or from estrogen itself. So it's not wise, and this is what drives me nuts seeing people in the final week taking 
Aromacin, Arimidex, Letrozole. Let's throw all three of them in there and have you try as anything. It just That's not just how it works. Let's throw them in the bin. That's what I always say. <laughs> get, get them in the bin. So that's quite an interesting point. And one, something, that, something that no one said on a podcast yet is that in the final week of a contest prep, we would perhaps lower testosterone marginally to reduce water retention. Um, in that instance, would we perhaps, or would you, up your DHT derivatives for the cosmetic effect look, or would you hold everything as is and just keep test a little bit lower? I guess it really depends on the, the individual, but that is sort of like the, the basics to a peak for a contest in that we try and marginally dry out the physique so we remove any subcutaneous water retention and then take advantage of the, the dry appearance that DHT derivatives create to our muscle tissue. Um, that's something that I've never been able to get an accurate answer on. Why exactly do these compounds change how we appear visually? Because there is a distinct difference in how, I, I guess, to a lay person, they may not understand what I'm speaking about, but to a seasoned competitor, as soon as we introduce these DHT derivatives, the physique changes. Oh, in that we have this drier look to our muscle mass. Um, maybe because of we change that intracellular water retention in that we now we have less water between the surface of the skin and the muscle tissue that we now start to see changes in the the, the surface appearance of the muscle and we start to see better definition that potentially could be a reason why but I've never been able to find it in literature that why someone's been able to explain it because I guess no one gives a <laughs> no, no one cares. But, Everyone just but, wants to look good. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just an interesting thing of what, like, if if you are a enhanced bodybuilder and you have gone through a prep, you will know what I'm speaking about. That by around the, you know, five or six week out mark period, when we start to manipulate things in this regard, your physique changes very fast. Oh, visually. Yeah, within two three weeks, you see a massive difference. Like, one of the sort of hypotheses I and I wanted to pick your brain and this is very raw I've just thought of it right now was that is, could it just be the introduction of your say DHT derivatives you get that increased anabolism from something like Primo increased anabolism obviously with no effect on you said mineral, mineral corticoids is that perhaps a hypothesis of why we could just look so much better because we are our capacity to churn through food is higher or is that totally am I on the wrong wrong line no that, that, that definitely does make logical sense yeah just... Yeah, no, it definitely does. I mean, <clears throat> the only thing that, and Primo as an example, um, Primo is a compound that if it was being utilized in a contest setting, I'd be looking to remove it at like the five or six week out mark period. Um, main reason being is Primo Bolin is highly faked. Yeah. It's very, <laughs> unless you're going to test exactly what you're using, it's, it's a gamble in how you're going to appear later on with your physique yeah. um, and as you said there if you are taking real prima bowling you won't have that wet appearance like I spoke about earlier on yeah. um, it should be a more um, I guess linear look in that you, you won't retain fluid as you progress into the show with it it will retain um, again you'll have a fuller appearance but again not at the cost of water retention yeah and I guess that kind of leads us 
pretty well into our next point is that around that marker, maybe five, six, even four weeks out, some people might introduce trembolone, which is often seen as, you know, the daddy, the, the fucking nectar of the gods in some guy's eyes because of, you know, it's how much stronger it is than test. But I don't think a lot of people know really what Tren is. And if they were to know that it's a anandrolone-based drug and, and perhaps could be bringing a little bit of water, um, that they might have a different view on it. So could you just kind of give the listeners an idea of, you know, what is Trenbolone, why is it so strong, and maybe what side effects you might see from it? Yeah, so basically if we look at what I briefly described with Nandrolone being that we've removed that C19 metal group. So now we've we've created a compound that we know retains its anabolic potential but dramatically reduces its androgenic potential and also its potential to aromatase. What we can do is we can make a further modification then to that A ring, the very first ring on the steroid, and we put a double bond between I think C4 and 5 by doing that now what we've created is, is a compound which binds very tightly to the androgen receptor so we're talking about a compound that has an affinity for the androgen receptor much greater than testosterone or DHT um, and with that then we start to see um, I guess with Trembolone and any other steroid, I guess, for that matter, we're always talking about androgen receptor activation when it comes to side effects. It's always the androgen receptor that is driving side effects. So whether you have mental side effects, we have androgen receptor activation in our brain, um, cardiovascular side effects, androgen receptor activation, um, not only in the muscle tissue of our hearts, but also within our liver that you know feeds back onto the heart. Um, but with Trembolone, I guess because it has such a great affinity for the androgen receptor and the fact that we've made that modification towards its anabolic potential, it is such a superior compound in a contest setting because we have a potential there to be able to aggressively lower calories and maintain training performance and aggression. Yeah. Um, I guess with that then, with that strong... Um, anabolic potential as well as the androgenic receptor interaction we then may start to see side effects in terms of um, neurochemistry and i guess this is where a lot of people then start to struggle contest time as soon as the likes of it a very strong androgen like trembolone goes in that we start to see either effects in our mental capacity so we start to develop more aggressive traits because of serotonin retention in our brain or we may start to see effects knock on to our sleep. Again, as an artifact of that neurochemistry and potentially depleting our serotonin, making it more difficult for us to fall asleep. So in one regard, we have a setting where high levels of serotonin making us ultra-regressive during training. And then later on in the day, post-training, you have this period where you're going to be in a low serotonin environment. You're going to have lo- less serotonin than you would normally, which will make it more difficult to initiate sleep. And I guess that's probably where we all, the common words that I come up with is transomnia. <laughs> I remember right. you, you told me that phrase on a call. I was like, man, I want to pick your brain. I've got guys on trend, they can't sleep. And you went, oh, transomnia. And I, I just burst out laughing. But it's so, 
so relatable. Anyone on that's taking trend and you know you're two three weeks out, you're lying on the couch with a blanket, you know, like rocking back and forth. <laughs> so <laughs> and I guess I guess people are probably yeah they can very relate to that that no matter what you try, you may be tired as fuck, but you can't fall asleep. Your brain just won't let you fall asleep. And then when you do fall asleep, you fall asleep for maybe two hours and then you wake up wide awake and you're sort of lying there in bed going, now what do I do for the next six hours? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it is. Exactly what it is. So for any guy out there listening, he's thinking, right, this this thing called trend, this is amazing, but I might not sleep well. So do you want to tell the listeners maybe perhaps how they could... No, I'm not going to say offset it because it might still be present, but improve their sleep quality whilst on trend. Yeah, so I guess you have the two aspects, like I said, you have to, with neurochemistry, you have this potential for serotonin to get depleted. So you have a low serotonin environment. And we also know that AAS have the potential then to act on dopamine receptors. So dopamine is an excitatory neurotransmitter. It excites our brain. It gives us reward, drive. Um, but it can also cause us then at night when we're lying in bed to have racing thoughts where our mind can't relax. Um, so if we look at neurochemistry and neurobiology towards sleep, in order to fall asleep, you need to have sufficient levels of serotonin to have a calmed environment for our brain. We also need a setting of low excitatory neurotransmitters so you need to have low dopamine low adrenaline low noradrenaline and what that's all dictated by so the serotonin obviously if if you are getting very aggressive in training you're gonna have to try and offset that serotonin deficiency with serotonin precursors like 5-HTP so 5-HTP will convert into serotonin and you're then increasing that pool of serotonin for your brain to relax but then you also have to control how your body eliminates dopamine, norepinephrine, and epinephrine, or adrenaline, noradrenaline, whatever way you want to call it. And that's all controlled by COMT. So COMT is catechol-O-methyltransferase. It's an enzyme that has a lot of functions in our body because it's a metal transferase. It's involved in methylation. It transfers metal groups. Its main function in our body is to methylate estrogen, to remove estrogen from our body. So when we when we metabolize estrogen, we turn it into the hydroxy derivatives. And um, so we have four hydroxy estrogen uh, estradiol and two hydroxy estradiol and sixteen hydroxy estradiol. That could be a whole other thing to discuss. But in order to eliminate one of those two hydroxy estradiol, it needs to be methylated. So we methylate it, we put on this metal CH3 group onto the molecule and it passes out of our body then we're able to eliminate it. So if you're an enhanced bodybuilder and you have high aromatase potential, you can see you're adding to that estrogen pool. So COMT is now having to process a shit ton more of estrogen than it normally would have to. Now, COMT not only does that with estrogen, it also helps to um, methylate our neurotransmitters, the excitatory ones, dopamine, adrenaline, noradrenaline, to remove them from our brain. So if you have massive levels of estrogen, you're removing all that estrogen, but then that dopamine and your excitatory transmitters build up in your brain and you're there lying in bed trying to <laughs> relax and you have just all these thoughts racing through your mind. Yeah. So 
COMT, uh, as it's an enzyme, it has its a uh, cofactor for how the enzyme works. The structural integrity of the enzyme res- revolves around a metal. Most enzymes in our body have this, where it needs a certain metal in order to retain its conformity and its structure. Our body requires it to synthesize the enzyme. And for COMT, it's magnesium. And if you ask any athlete, what's your magnesium intake? Most of them won't be able to tell you at all. Most of them probably won't even take a multivitamin. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So now now you have this massive amount of estrogen potentially being created from, you know, taking like compounds that will aromatize but you then also have this aspect where you're not taking in enough magnesium to support COMT to deal with its other job and the neurotransmitters so what we sort of be looking at with an enhanced athlete who is taking highly androgenic compounds would be to increase their magnesium intake especially around bedtime again what we're trying to influence there is the neurobiology of clearing out those neurotransmitters and i i can vouch for that like you talk you told me to do that i had a guy like literally couldn't sleep i went mate go two to two and a half thousand magnesium glycinate pre bit it was your i got him to buy supplement needs and uh, he texted me the next day and he went i've never slept so well in my life and i was like fuck yes but what i didn't do and i'm really glad i asked you that question was i didn't get him to take 5 htp he was just simply going straight for melatonin yeah. So yeah. I guess no, exactly. So like, if, in hindsight, if you have a guy, if you have a guy in that regard, that you know, they have a racing mind. It's more so magnesium. Whereas if you have someone that's just lying in bed and their mind is blank and there's no sleep onset, it's more so serotonin. Okay, and I think that's a massive knowledge bomb because I've just sat there and went, as you're speaking, I was like, ah, oh, fuck, right. That's that's what it should have done with the other guys, but. That makes complete sense because obviously with it being a, a metabolic intermediate of melatonin, I thought, oh, just give it melatonin and you'll go to sleep. But clearly that's that's not see, the process. The, the misunderstanding there is that oral melatonin has a half-life of about two hours. Right. So if someone has a melatonin deficiency or is struggling to create melatonin, if you give you know sublingual melatonin, Yes, you will bring sleep onset on. The person gets sleepy and falls asleep. But the whole concept with my sleep stack was that there's the cofactors there to force serotonin to melatonin. So serotonin levels are directly correlated to your melatonin levels. And the whole point of the sleep stack was that I increase your serotonin to help you fall asleep. But then as soon as you're asleep, that serotonin is now getting pushed to melatonin to keep you asleep. So if you give someone melatonin pre-bed in a contest setting, you'll get them to sleep for about three hours and then they'll wake up because their body's not making its own. Yeah. And that, that right. makes total sense. Like, I'm just sitting there nodding because I'm like, <laughs> that's maybe why I wasn't sleeping. <laughs> and that, that's why just taking a simple step back towards, you know, so with melatonin supplementation, yes, you are addressing a problem in that the person can't sleep. But you're not addressing the root cause. And that was the whole concept behind the sleep stack was that it's not a tranquilizer. It's not going to knock you out. It's going to make your body do its own job. Yeah. Create the serotonin, create the melatonin so that you are actually naturally sleeping. Yeah. Which is, which is brilliant, mate. As I said, a very good 
follow up to say why your compounds or your uh, supplements do what they do in regards to helping assisted athletes out there, individuals that are participating in this. And for anyone that is uh, thinking about taking trend, please take Dr. Dean's advice when it comes to optimizing your sleep. Uh, from personal experience, it's not fun. Um, but I'm going to move us on um, to talk about the next topic, which no one has discussed yet on this podcast, so you'll be the, the first one to give us the the lowdown of it, and that is growth hormone. Now, growth hormone itself, um, you know, people might read this on the internet or a forum or, you know, a big Davy down their gyms just told us about this. Growth hormone's amazing, um, and they should add it to their stack of what they're taking, um, whether they're bulking or cutting, um, because it's going to it's gonna make them even bigger. Now, in layman's terms, um, as best you can, could you tell us why that maybe perhaps is or isn't the case? Um, and if it isn't, you know, what is the case? So I guess with growth hormone, yes, if we add that to a anabolic stack, we have potential there to further augment muscle protein synthesis in that you know it's not necessarily growth hormone that's having its direct action it's the potential for growth hormone to then augment the production of localized insulin growth factor so you know insulin growth factor is one of the direct um i guess you could say mechano factors for increasing contractile protein synthesis um however it would probably make more sense so uh, growth hormone requires the presence of east, uh, insulin then to you know augment the production of insulin growth factor igf so it's probably makes more sense that we ensure that we have a, a, a highly insulinogenic environment to ensure that we we are maximizing this conversion to localized igf um, again people view when we take growth hormone as a potential negative, because obviously we're going to have systemic IGF being produced, which again can cause, you know, our, our organs to grow, etc. Localized IGF, so intramuscular IGF, it will help, you know, at the site to increase muscle mass. Um, I guess you could then go, you know, down the rabbit hole of all the different mechanisms of action, but on a, on a simple level, we have growth hormone affecting how we create mRNA, so our signaling messenger for increasing protein synthesis. We augment that with how anabolics work in the same regard that we have act, uh, activation of the anger receptor that causes gene transcription, so the genes get turned on to create, you know, um, a certain, uh, we create a signaling protein that turns on a certain gene for anabolism. So when we combine the two together, we're sort of, you know, riding the wave of how the two of them, um, I guess, complement one another. Um, but I'm not really too so like, I guess the cost issue with growth hormone, um, how much of a difference is it going to make to your average lay person in terms of how much muscle mass they're going to gain from adding growth hormone to their stack? Very hard to say. Again, we're talking about genetics here of that production of mRNA and you know the activation of the androgen receptor. Um, it's not so much the androgen receptor activation; it's what the underlying cascade happens when that androgen receptor gets activated. And when the androgen receptor gets activated, the 
complex of the steroid moves into your nucleus and you have these androgen response elements. Um, those androgen response elements then lead to the production of signaling proteins, which then turn on genes. Genetically, certain people might not have, you know, a higher expression of a certain um, androgen response element versus another person's. So it's not that you can say, you know, take this stack, add two IUs or four IUs of growth hormone, and you're going to get this, you know, amplification. So if this certain dosage of an anabolic gives you X amount of muscle mass, if we add in two to four IUs of growth hormone, it's going to, you know, double that amount. Yeah. There's no direct correlation there in how much you're going to get from it. Um, so I, I'm never of the opinion of pushing growth hormone alongside anabolics in terms of, you know, you're going to get this maximal increase in protein synthesis. I guess with people, it's sort of try it and see, basically. Yeah, which makes sense. Um, now, see if we consider the cost of, you know, it's for sometimes it's maybe two, three, four, sometimes 500 pounds, right, a month for this growth. If there was a cheaper equivalent, and I'm thinking of um, like MK667, which is yeah. like a, I can't remember the name, for it. it's called like a secretagog or something like that. Of, a secretagog. So, so basically when you take MK677, it, it causes to, to amplify the production of growth hormone in our body. So if you were to combine that with, you know, you mentioned insulin, would that have, and this was a question from a client, would that have, or... Uh, potentially the same effect as you would get from as strong effect as from growth itself i guess i guess you then need to consider just because you've amplified growth hormone production at the pituitary where exactly is that growth hormone going yeah so with again there's very little again this is a, a whole area that you get conflicting opinions between uh, subcutaneous administration of growth hormone versus intramuscular growth hormone. So that if you administer growth hormone intramuscularly, it's going to act potentially locally first before going into systemic circulation. Yep. And if we if we take advantage of that, you know, localized administration, is there potential then that we can augment local IGF one production? Um, now, if we look at you know the secretagog MK six seven seven, and we look at the growth hormone releasing peptides, the GHRPs, or the, the growth hormone uh, receptor, the the likes of CJC, etc., that um, cause the augment release of growth hormone as opposed to being a direct growth hormone uh, peptide itself. Um, again, you're looking at your body producing its own level of growth hormone. So again, where does your body naturally metabolize its growth hormone? Is is again what you need to consider, yeah. and I, I can't give that answer towards what a person may yeah. or may not experience from it. Yeah, no. Will they experience, you know, if they were to take the likes of, you know, the um, GH fragment is another thing to consider. That's apparently, you know, growth hormone is a peptide with a specific amino acid sequence. So if we look at what each sequence in that peptide does, we potentially find a certain section within the hormone that elicits its fat burning effects, its lipolytic effects. Um, 
when we administer that, is that going to directly increase lipolysis in a certain individual? Again, all comes down to how does that body, person's body um, metabolize growth hormone itself directly anyway. Yeah. And and again, the whole thing with peptides, I don't know. I'm, I, I've watched closely over the years, but I still, I still hold my suspicions surrounding, you know, MK677 was in clinical trials, but again, it, you don't have a control over how much you're secreting basically of your own growth hormone and that's where we see that a flat line if people have looked at the studies where you know after two or three days of mk677 we've sort of burnt out the secretion of growth hormone the excessive growth hormone um i mean i don't know i i I just find i just find that it's fascinating how people argue and debate all these research molecules that have still not been established clinically yeah and what i love is that you kept going on about that it's individual based and for you know joe blogs it might get him absolutely fucking jacked but then for joe blogs number two he's like oh that was shit that must be that must be totally bunk gear and when it could just be well no just you don't have the genetics for it so i love the individuality that you kept repeating um, because it's true it's often seen as like oh you know my coach told me to take uh, growth hormone it means i'm gonna get fucking peeled and it's gonna be great and then it doesn't happen and yeah. they, they kind of go oh it must have been the growth the growth must have been fake and you kind of go well maybe it wasn't so i guess that you know the, the, the point of that question was just that i suppose we, we won't really ever know but you know with yourself being so experienced knowledgeable i thought why not why not chip away at the master as such uh, yeah, yeah, and I mean, it's just uh, uh, being fully transparent with people to actually critically think if they're going to, you know, utilize a compound like that. They're just because there is anecdote there uh, with potential research, it does not necessarily mean that you're going to experience that same desired effect, I guess, is what, what my whole underlying thing towards that question was as well. Yeah, yeah, totally. Now, I think one other area that, again, I've, I've talked maybe a tiny bit about on podcasts before, but not enough, and something that every, you know, we've came on call about, I think, three times now um, to talk about blood work from you know when I've been cruising, when I've done a blast, and I still remember, I'll tell you guys a story, that I, I paid Dr. Dean for, it was for an hour, and I said, let's just use my blood work as a, a baseline. I said, can you just talk me through the terminology of why these things are off, how we could perhaps get on top of them. And I literally, I've got like, I've got it as a file saved in my computer. It's like five or six, six pages long. And me just type and type and type and type. And so you've kind of have to do, go through that. And then every other time we've came on call, we just literally come on, you get up and you just go, right, this is off. Let's put that in. This is off. Let's put that. In. And I'm just sitting there like, that's fucking brilliant. But so many guys out there, they're willing to spend 150, 200 quid a month on gear but then the minute you mention hey let's check your health they go oh no 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 i don't want to do that no, no, no. it's at my own risk and you kind of go come on to fuck and i say that because that was me you know back 21 22 years old i was going on some forum you know again listen to big davy about what to do when you come off and whatnot without really checking but i suppose could you explain to the listeners why it is so important to get blood work done and, and if there is a few absolute markers you'd be looking at um, and trying to take care of, what would they be? Right, so I guess this is where a lot of people start to not see eye to eye with me in the bodybuilding (laughs) 
circles, I guess, since I've come to popularity in that I am always driving home the importance of blood work. Yep. Now, blood work is not the be-all and end-all because there are certain things that we can't pick up that's in our serum blood. But it gives us an accurate or close to accurate picture of how certain physiological functions are operating in the body. Um, with blood work... I guess we strip it right back to the start. If you're a natural athlete and you're looking to go down an enhanced route, please get your blood work done before you even touch anything. Look at where your natural hormone baseline is. Look at where your testosterone, estrogen, LH and FSH are. That will give you then an idea then when you cease use of anabolics, where your HPTA needs to recover back to. Because if you don't get that number, you have no clue where your body is to go to when you initiate PCT. You have no idea where your natural baseline of testosterone fell prior to using anabolics. So that's like, you know, smack my head moments with people that come to me for PCT advice. And it's like, well, what was your natural baseline? I don't know. It's like, well, then I don't know where we're going to be recovering to when we get to the end of PCT. Is that a normal testosterone level? Or are you now making less testosterone than you were previously? But anyway, that aside, you also need to understand, do you have potential health issues before you even touch anabolics? Do you have, you know, genetic susceptibility to making more LDL than HDL? Do you have currently high levels of inflammation that you don't even know about? And again, could be compounding your risk towards cardiovascular disease. Um so blood work before initiation of cycle for first time or blood work when we are using compounds is vital to be checked, I guess, beginning of a cycle, six weeks into a cycle, and then six weeks after a cycle. We don't necessarily have to always check our hormone levels. So again, cost is a factor, as we said. When you tell someone, get blood work, it's all like, okay, I'm willing to spend £200 on gear a month, £250 on supplements. <laughs> I'm not spending I'm not spending £100 on blood work because, yeah. you know, what value does that have to me? Or against the inconvenience of going and getting it done. That's what a lot of people yeah. tend to shy away from. Yeah. Um, but I guess if you track then how your health progresses on cycle, you can then understand, you know, six weeks into a cycle, well, what happened to your body? I guess the simplest explanation towards side effects with steroids is androgen receptor activation. It's always the androgen receptor being activated, driving a certain biological process. Whether that be, you know, what we want desired, that's increased muscle mass from, you know, the androgen receptor being activated and turning on genes for anabolism. But you could have androgen receptor activation, for example, in your liver, that turns on genes which makes less amounts of hepatic lipase or causes it to be destroyed. So people probably are aware that when you take anabolic steroids, there's potential for your HDL to get plummeted. HDL being one of our recycling and transport molecules of cholesterol. So it basically helps clean up the mess that may be left behind when LDL does its job. Um, so we have this potential now for hepatic lipase to be increased and we're destroying all our HDL. 
Now, some people might be genetically gifted and their HDL never gets touched when they take steroids. You have someone that, you know, starts a, I guess, moderate dose of testosterone and all of a sudden their, their HDL goes from 1.2, which is normal, down to 0.7. Yeah. And that's all driven genetically. And it's about assessing what's happening to your body when you take these androgens and being able to then specifically mitigate the potential risks that you see in your blood work through, I guess, either dietary intervention or supplementation use. And I guess that's what we covered a few times in our calls when we looked at your blood work as well. Like that's out. I guess the one thing we could go to androgen receptor activation in your spleen. Your spleen makes red blood cells. Yeah. You have increased activation of androgen receptors in your spleen. So by now people are probably sick of me saying this activation of the androgen receptor, <laughs> but it's a driving team of why we get these side effects. When the androgen receptor in the spleen gets activated, you have a potential for erythropoiesis. So you have increased red blood cell production. And that then may augment then on towards your hematocrit, your HCT. So you'll see this on your blood work, your hematocrit, which is the percentage of red blood cells per unit volume of blood. Basically, the higher that number is, the more, um, I guess, the less viscous your blood is. So your blood is now basically turning to sludge. Um, which is not good. Two. No, because again, you're, you're obviously increasing, um, you're, you're decreasing blood volume in that your blood is now mainly filled with red blood cells. So it's having to put extra pressure on your heart to drive that volume of blood around. So again, you can see blood pressure starting to increase, which can lead on to potential issues with your kidneys or potential for stroke in your brain. That's another thing. Um, but again, it's all driven by your use of androgens affecting that androgen receptor in the spleen. So you have two choices. You either remove some of the blood out of your body by bloodletting or donating some blood, or you lower your dose and you lower that androgen receptor activation. It's as simple as that. Yeah. I, I still I rem guess... remember that call when I think I'd, I'd done a blast and I, I'd ran uh, EQ, um, boldenone for those you don't know what that is, and it will throw off the formation of those blood cells. And you were just like, on you know go go donate, donate blood and then i did i didn't stupidly didn't and then i got my blood work blood work done again and it's still off and you're like oh did you donate blood and i went no but i'm gonna do that and i literally went the next week got that point i remember uh instagram uh photoing you and just being like i'm getting it done don't worry um, <laughs> and i guess like at the time I, I was of that whole and there'll be listeners out there thinking they'll be thinking but that's really inconvenient i, I need to you know arrange an appointment and blah blah I, I just now say, uh, oh my guys, just go get it done. It, there's no ifs or buts, just have a clear out, get things back to where they need to be. And rather than, you know, you lower the dose, which of course will help, but then that could take a long time before the, you know, erythropoiesis has got back down where it needs to be. But simple, donate a pint of blood, you're in and out, the next, you don't even notice, really. I mean, by all means, don't go hit legs, the, the, like the same day, <laughs> right? You're not doing that, but the next day or whatever, it, it's absolutely fine. And, again when we came on i think it was the third time it was fine and it was just like yeah i went and done your advice now and we're all good um and, and i mean that that's that when we look at hct someone could have hct over you know 60 65 which is quite high 
but you'd be asymptomatic. You'd have no symptoms. Yeah. You might you might be you know a little flushed in the face when training. You know, have a bright red face because obviously you have increased red blood cells. But generally, day to day, you're not going to feel that high blood pressure that it's creating. Yeah. You're not going to sense any of these things, and that's where it becomes vital that we track. You know, not only the hematology, so our red blood cells, that we track. You know, kidney function. So we know where a baseline creatinine is. And again, when we look at blood work, if you are getting blood work done, I guess the mid-cycle bloods that you'd be sort of looking to get done can be skewed a little bit um, kidney marker and liver marker-wise because it's more likely that you're not going to rest. But the general advice if you are getting blood work is I would advise that you're looking at somewhere around five to six days full rest from training lower protein to somewhere in around a gram per pound and cease creatine use. So what you're doing there is sort of getting a normal look at how your body would operate under normal physiological condition. And then you have your blood work when you're on cycle, taking creatine, etc., to compare against. So, you know, you have the training bias and the supplementation bias when you're on. So therefore, when you're finished your cycle, you have this now post-use baseline to assess is everything actually operating normal yeah. um, and, and I guess that that's one of the things that can freak people out with blood work is that they look at um, EGF-4 which is your estimated glomerular filtration rate so that's an estimation of how your kidneys are filtering your blood and it's mainly affected by your creatine value that's how they do the calculation so if your creatinine value is high your egf4 is going to be low but creatinine information not only comes from muscle mass muscle cell degradation it comes from also your creatine supplementation so again you could be skewing that number um and i guess that that combined with watching your blood pressure will give you an accurate marker of what you're doing to your kidneys because it's it is a silent killer we we, we see that you know post use of AAS in later age, we may have caused stage one, two or three kidney failure. Yeah. Uh, chronic kidney disease, I mean, CKD, um, which could lead to kidney failure. And again, all this could be potentially avoided if you stay diligent to your blood work and health marker um, tracking. Yeah. I mean, I, I find it even, even difficult to try and get guys to buy a 20 pound blood pressure monitor off Amazon and just say, listen, just send me that value every day. You know, put it in your check-in sheet and they just go, every check-in, it's missed, it's missed. And you go, and every check-in you remind them of health and this, that, and the next thing. And I think that this this episode for me was about making sure that we had someone that came on that was so health-orientated that has a, a, a huge chain of supplements to just say, these take care of your health and I know because this is what happens that compound to your blood work and blah, 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 that there's a lot of valuable things you've said just in that segment there in regards to blood work that if no one's had it done yet, of course what I would recommend is if you still do them, arrange a Skype call with yourself and, and literally go through it. Relearn, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, it just baffles me. I mean, even, like, I coach people but I only keep a very, very small amount and for those who have worked with me, they will know that I'm very health driven first. And then once we have health completely optimized and we're happy in that regard, 
then we can look obviously to change certain things. But I, I'll tell you now the amount of people who have come to me and taken a coaching space and left after four weeks because of what I've suggested towards their health, they did not want to see through, obviously. Yeah, which is quite sad that they're, they're not valuing their, their health. And I mean, I guess I, I'd said this to someone, but if, if coaching was my main income and that I was a mainstream coach, I'd probably be broke because I'd be turning X, Y, and Z away. <laughs> um, and like, I guess like that that's one thing that I guess it comes to the onus and responsibility of online coaches and that we have all these people offering online coaching and, you know, oh yeah, we can, you know, throw in a supplementation plan with absolutely no regard towards someone's health. Yeah. And, and I'm not joking. I've lost count of over the last three years, how many people have come to me and I've had to pick up the pieces from a previous coach. Oh, I could imagine. And, and it's like, before they even come to me, my very first thing with anyone that wants to work with me is, you need blood work in the last month. And then like one of the questions that I asked them is, when was the last time you had blood work? Uh, maybe two years ago. I was like, you know, I'm not going near you without blood work. And then, and then based off that blood work, you start to see all these problems. And it's like, well, what did your coach last say? He's like, nothing. You just had me like take 500 milligrams of test with 400 milligrams of MPP and some Masteron. And then we threw in an oral for eight weeks. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Someone said to me during a, who's worse? The people who are putting out bullshit information or the people who believe it. And that's I was true. like, to be honest, in my mind, it's both people. <laughs> but like that—that's one thing that a lot of people don't consider. That like, you—you you have this coach. Make sure that you—you you actually understand who you are trusting. And I know that that is quite bad to say, but like, if you are going to be following this route of enhanced supplementation, you need to be taking a, a, an objective view towards your future health. Yeah. Something that I know that personally I didn't do years ago. And as I said, God, you're lucky if I took a multivitamin at the time. Um, and I know there'll be many guys listening to this that'll probably be doing the same. So I think now would be a perfect time to just give the listeners just an idea of what your biggest lesson has been in your career. Uh, and if there is anyone out there listening, what advice would you give them? Okay, so... My biggest lesson, this is a tough question to answer. <laughs> it could be anything, absolutely anything you could eat. It's something I ask everyone. Yeah, I mean, I guess the biggest lesson that I've learned now, so I'm going to be 32 next year, and I started bodybuilding when I was 22. And um, I guess I was fortunate in that my route into the enhanced world came from a natural perspective of being hypogonadal um, I, I guess my my biggest lesson I can give to someone is that patience yeah. if you are looking to go this route if you're looking to potentially become an enhanced bodybuilder make sure that you're taking every effort and step towards maximizing that natural potential yeah. seriously do not underestimate the power of you know making sure that your diet is maximized your nutrition your recovery and sleep i'm starting to see way too many young people 
delve into the world of anabolics way too early because they see all as social influence. Yeah. Um, I guess right. If someone was to enter into that sort of world, you're looking at somewhere around 24, 25, provided you don't have any hypogonadal issues or, you know, early use may be warranted if that person did, you know, genuinely have a future in bodybuilding. Yeah. But I guess that the biggest lesson when I look back, I am glad that I kept that patience. Yeah. So obviously when I when I shattered my ankle, um I had like three or four years natural training before I went and competed. And it's sort of like now you have people who start bodybuilding at seventeen and go, I wanna compete next year. What cycle do I need to take? Yeah. And it's like mate, just go get your blood work done, let's see where your natural testosterone is. And most of the time it comes back at like 24, 25. I was like, what are you thinking? Yeah, I wish, I wish they don't really need to be taking anything. In that yeah, you, you have at least, you know, two or three years minimal natural training at that level to fully maximize that that genetic potential before you even go near using any sort of AS. Cause, because I guarantee you, again, it comes back to the blood work aspect. If someone gets their blood work done pre-cycle, and their testosterone comes back at say 30 at the very top of the physiological range if they follow bro science logic of you know oh your first cycle let's do 400 milligrams of testosterone their test level might end up somewhere around 90 that's three times their natural genetic production of testosterone you could give that same dose of testosterone to another guy and his testosterone level might be nine yeah and there you're going to 90 that's 10 times what he naturally <laughs> produces we need to start thinking logically here towards you know looking at where we make things naturally and where we're going to pharmacologically yeah that's... and again it all comes back to patience patience to observe how you can progress your body naturally before you even enter this world that's awesome man something that again i completely agree with and something I wish I had done back in the day. Um, but hey, oh, now if you could give the listeners um, who, again, perhaps have been living under a rock, they don't know who you are, where they can, you know, where they can find you on Instagram, um, your website, supplements, um, all that jazz. So you can find the Dr. Dean Range on Supplement Needs website, which is supplementneeds.co.uk. Um, and I think you'll get 5% off if you use Dr. Dean as a code. Um, you'll find me on Instagram at D-E-A-N-S-T-M so D-E-N-S-T-M and that's also my YouTube channel I haven't been as active on YouTube in the last year but I guess that's where a lot of people might have seen the PCT if you are interested in PCT and we didn't discuss that on the podcast there is a very straightforward breakdown towards PCT and a hypothetical protocol in the comments by myself that people can go and watch on YouTube and I'm on the Train by JP forum nearly every day answering questions as well. So if people want to join the forum, they can pick my brain there as well. That's awesome. And I think that anyone out there listening, if you want to know more on this stuff, uh, I would strongly recommend you send Dean an email um, and arrange a call. I think you still do private calls, right? I do, yeah. yeah. Um, Once le- a week, I'm still doing, yeah, still doing consultations. To, to, to learn about this stuff um, because his knowledge is... Um, you know, second to none. So, 
as I said to you, mate, thank you for coming on um, today. It was a, a learning curve for me with some things. Uh, I, I threw in some questions that I thought, I'm going to check this in because I want to know. Um, so much appreciated. Um, and to anyone listening, um, I think that I speak for both me and Dean Moosey. Wherever, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, just give it the beans.